Welcome back to the Humans of Education podcast. This week, we have an amazing guest, Mrs. Ray Hewitt, and we dive deep into her journey into education, becoming the CMO of the Teach Better team, her bucket list, her recent experience as a TEDx speaker, and her thoughts on grace, empathy, and judgment. Amazing episode with another amazing human. I hope you guys enjoy it. Before we get into the show, as always, the Humans of Education podcast is brought to you by our Teacher Fit Partner Schools. If you want to learn more about how to become a partner school and provide wellness to your educators, your community, check out the link in the show notes. All right, guys, enjoy this episode, and I cannot wait to hear what you think. Welcome back to the Humans of Education podcast. This week, we have another amazing guest. We are honored to have Ray Hewitt on the show, the powerhouse behind the Teach Better brand, the Teach Better team. She carries the load for the guys in that company. I know it. So, Ray, it is exciting to have you on the show. Oh, I'm so stoked to be here and so appreciative that you understand that I just tolerate Jeff and Chad. Like this is such a wonderful thing that you see me for who I am. (laughs) Absolutely. When I see the company and the brand and the work that you guys are doing, I always know and go back to that quote, you know, behind every strong man is a stronger woman. And that's what I associate (laughs) with the Teach Better team because I know you're back there running the show. So it's- Oh, I love it. I love it. (laughs) Um, It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. We've been connected for a while. You guys have done such great work and growth really in the past year and before that. Um, So I'm excited to dive in, not just to the company, but to you as a human. So to kick it off, you do so much. You are a middle school math teacher. You're the CMO of Teach Better. You're a two-time author, a speaker, a blogger, a podcast host. You do so much stuff. Without talking about any of that and education, describe yourself as a human. Whoa. Oh my gosh. Way to make it challenging. Because you know, I have like the bio and people are like, oh, Ray, what do you do? You go through the checklist, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, outside of all that, uh, I'm a yoga lover. I'm a poodle owner and I love wearing black clothing. I don't know. Like I'm, I'm known for like my black t-shirts. So like, I'll take it. There you go. Oh, and I, um, I guess I'm a wine drinker. How about that? That will be, I'm a foodie a little bit. Yeah. I love it. Foodie, wine drinking, yogi who loves to wear black. Yeah. Oh, and the poodles. Don't forget the poodles. Oh, and a poodle. I love it. I love it. Talk to me about yoga. I know you've been doing that since we've been connected. Where does that fit into your life and kind of your wellness practices? Being the teacher fit person, I want to, I want to explore that just a little bit. No, for sure. You know, I got into education because I was a dance teacher. And so I went the route of becoming an educator a little more formally in like the math classroom. But initially when I went into school, I was like, I'm going to be a dance instructor. So when I left that field and kind of went 
in a more traditional education route, I lost kind of this, this element of my life that I had been doing for years and I really enjoyed. So um, my first year teaching, I got a position at a yoga studio teaching yoga. And that was kind of filling my, my athletic, like, you know, need that I really, really loved having that break from the world. Right. Um, and also the, the similarities between dance and yoga. And so now I don't teach that definitely was something that uh, I let go of quite quickly just because of my busy schedule. But, um, I do typically do yoga about five times a week in the evenings. And I feel like that's weird to say, cause I know you're supposed to probably work out in the mornings, but there is something magical about ending your day doing yoga, showering, and like then having a clear mind when you go to bed. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, a powerful thing on two fronts. One, you kind of build it into your routine where you think it fits best. You know, mornings, everyone does all the talk about starting your day with movement and like owning the morning and all those things. But if that doesn't work for you, finding something that does, and if that's in the evening, and obviously there are so many mental and emotional benefits to yoga and the practices associated with it, that doing in the evening, I think, is a great place for it. So well, it's, it's so funny, like owning your morning. Like I love my morning routine, but when I put yoga in it, it messes up my flow. Like it adds stress in mm -hmm. areas. So I have a morning routine. I love my mornings, but yeah, I think there's so much clarity as educators. We wear so many hats throughout the day that I like stepping away from the world of work and clearing my mind for an opportunity to actually then relax. And I, <laughs> yoga helps. Let me tell you, getting a good workout in is a huge asset. Yeah, 100%. So I want to switch a little bit. You just came off of last month giving an amazing TEDx speech. And I, I watched the TEDx amazing, amazing topic. I'm a huge fan of that topic, but I want to talk about what were the emotions associated with being selected to be a speaker, going through the preparation. And then I think also watching yourself, cause I know it was pre-recorded and then it came out later. Like talk me through that journey and kind of the, the emotions that were associated with it. Oh my gosh. A lot of emotions. Um, I won't lie to you doing a TEDx presentation was something that I feel like I had on my bucket list and I can dive into more of my theory on bucket lists, but this was something I truly believed right or wrong, truly to my core that I was never going to be able to do. And so I threw my name in the hat to do it, assuming, and, and when I say assuming, I mean like 99% confident, I wouldn't get it, but I was hopeful I'd get feedback maybe on why I wasn't selected. Maybe I'd learn a little bit more about the process because truly I just knew I wanted to stand on the red circle and I didn't care how it happened or how long it took me, but it would be so cool and like beautiful high heels to stand on that, you know, stand on that dot. And so when I was selected, I actually found out when I was with my family over the holidays and it was this wonderful celebration. You get the email that's like, congratulations, you've been selected nine people out of 3000 applications. And you're like, holy moly. So then because of COVID, the year that I did my TEDx presentation, everything was kind of different and their timeline was different. It really was a surreal experience. I actually ended up getting the email. Um, it was the middle of January that had like the details, right? So I knew it was accepted, but I hadn't really heard any details. And it said in two weeks, you're going to, to, to do your TED talk. And I was like, whoa, 
two weeks. Now I, I don't know anything about Ted. Maybe that's typical. So I was like, all right, I'm going to bust my butt for the next two weeks. Sign me up. But one element in the email that was important that I really value about Ted is that they require you to have a coach from Ted before you do your speech. And I was like, cool. Like I get to collaborate with an expert, sign me up. And so it was comical because my coach had reached out a few days later after this email and said, Hey, let's meet Thursday. We'll talk shop. And I really approached it like, oh, what a wonderful moment for, she's going to tell me all the secrets and then I'll get crafted because when you apply for a TED presentation, it has to be an original content. So I didn't yet have my presentation written because it was a new idea, right? It was crafted specifically for TED. So the morning of our meeting, which would have been four days after this two week mark email, she emailed me and said, I'm really excited to meet with you. If you could send me all of your slides and, a, and your speech word for word before we meet, that would be a great place to start. And I was like, Ooh, I don't have any of that. I'm like, I have a title, like, and it's a working title. I mean, I, I don't know that, that I, oh my gosh. So I was so embarrassed and she was a really tough coach. And I, I think I had, I learned more that week in a day working with her than I had in two years because constantly it was me, you know, submitting a, a vulnerable piece of information for my Ted presentation and her giving me an abundance of feedback. And I had never had that intense personalized, um, coaching ever in my life. Uh, so it was a surreal experience. I learned a ton about myself and I was happy to have the filming over, but it was comical because although, you know, normally it wouldn't have been filmed until the day of when you did it live, it's actually not over until Ted approves your presentation. So even throughout the whole process, you're writing, then you then it's filmed and the world can see it. It's still not done. And they can still say, oh, it never happened until Ted approves the the speech. So, so many people when it originally aired were like, oh my gosh, Ray, you must feel so much better that it's all over. And I was like, no, what if it doesn't get approved? Then it's all for nothing. So actually, truly, it was last week. It got approved. It's officially officially at TEDx.com. It's on YouTube. Love it. But um, gosh, that was that was a rough go. Let me tell you. <laughs> Can you share with us like the number one or one and two biggest things you learned about yourself? Something I talk about often and I truly value is being able to continue to learn and evolve as a human as we continue to age. When you get to our age, which I think we're, we're similar in age, I might be older, yeah. I'm not sure. Um, we slow down like... Yeah putting ourselves in vulnerable situations like you did by applying and going on the stage and being forced to adapt and learn and be, you know, all those things. So I would love to hear what, what you learned about yourself. Well, speaking of vulnerability, that was probably the biggest thing I learned. Um, I crafted up. So Ted requires you to submit a full speech word for word before you do your speech, which is not my style. Um, I, I'm not like somebody who would prepare a speech by memorizing a paragraph by paragraph, you know, uh, dialogue. So that was not my intention. And that was quickly told to me that I, that needs to change. Um, but I drafted up my first draft of my presentation and I thought it was really good. I was like, wow, I've put a lot of heart and soul into this. I, I worked really hard. And in my first coaching meeting, um, she shared her screen and like the first three pages were literally all crossed out. 
Like, she was like, I have some feedback for you. It was a great start. And then you show your screen. It's like all red. And she's like, so I, I remember that feeling from like writing in college, just getting things. Right. <laughs> so that was one of those moments you're like, oh, my gosh, right. Don't cry. Don't cry. Don't cry. You can do it. Um, but one of her biggest feedback elements actually early on was that I was talking about mastering learning. I was talking, I was talking about the power of giving students the time and personalized support they need to truly master content. And yet I had not incorporated any of my own personal story struggling as a learner into my first draft. And so she really pushed back and said, you know, you were somebody who was not college bound. I had an IEP. I, I, I couldn't read until I was much older and, you know, um, in my life. And she was like, how could you possibly think that you could speak on this topic and not share your personal story? And so one of the biggest things I learned is how to become comfortable being vulnerable with strangers to say, you know, I've struggled. Here's the ugly part of the beauty that I think we've, we've reached in education. And so that was probably the biggest takeaway. Yeah, I love that. And that's a great transition to what I wanted to talk about because that was the biggest takeaway I had from your TED Talk was your vulnerability and willingness to share that part of you, which obviously none of us see if we were just to follow you on social and we see the amazing work you're doing and the you know the way that you're you know, focused on inspiring your students and inspiring other staff members, teachers, et cetera. So if you could share a little bit about that journey and, you know, be a little bit vulnerable and share the experience of going from, you know, not college bound, you know, you're not, you're not smart enough to go to college to now, you know, I assume you have a master's degree and you're doing all this stuff and you are like setting the example for other educators who could have been that educator however many years ago, we won't put a number on it, that told you you were good enough, right? All right. No, you know, it's tricky. I, everybody has their own struggle and personal story. And I I grew up in an atmosphere where, where we wish all of our students would, right? I see 150 kids every single day, and I wish all 150 kids had my parents. I grew up in an affluent area in the Chicagoland area. My parents were both hard workers. We, we were middle class, if not high class. I mean, I was very comfortable. I went to the best schools in the Chicagoland suburbs. You know, it's, it's one of those perfect storms. Right. And yet, um, I was diagnosed SLD in second grade by Ms. Davison, who's my second grade teacher, um, specific learning disability. And it was in reading, writing, and math. And, and it was comical because I have this line that I said in the TED, in the TEDx speech, where I really truly believed that if you can't read, you can't learn. And, and I, I mean that to my core. I grew up in a world where people had doctorates and master's degrees and they were experts in their field. I was surrounded by, by very, very smart people. So the concept that you were not a reader meant that you weren't educated. And I really struggled all my years in school because I... I played the game of, of hating school. I, I didn't read my first book cover to cover until my senior year in college where I forced myself to sit down and do it for the sake of saying I did. And, you know, it was, it was this blending of internally struggling, knowing that every single thing was hard, every class was challenging, but then externally 
being rebellious, being, you know, disrespectful to my special education ed, you know, teachers who were doing nothing but supporting me in every area possible. And I will tell you that the strategies I learned in middle school were, you know, to, you know, utilize tech tools to support my learning disability are truly resources I use today in my life. And I don't think we give educators enough credit to have the time to sit back and hear a student say, when you told me I should use audio versions of text to learn, you changed my life. And I didn't notice it until 20 years later. Like, that's a big deal. Yeah, that's a huge deal. And the fact that you were able to figure it out on your own, I think is a, a great credit to yourself. Like you figured out the tools you needed and the tools you're still using. And then the connection point to mastery learning in the Ted talk and what you do now that like, you know, we have all these resources not to replace us, but to facilitate learning for so many different types of students. Like one person learns this way. One person learns that way. I think you and I are very similar that like, we, we learn very differently. Like I did not in, really enjoy school. It didn't necessarily come hard, but like I would rather listen or watch and do with my hands and like see, you know, be in the classroom and read something and think that that's going to work for me. So I love that story. I, I appreciate the vulnerability and sharing that because I think if, if you haven't experienced it personally, it's hard to relate to a student in that, in that path. It really is. And, you know, it's, it's so funny because there are, there are students out there that are good at playing school. And I think for me, it's not that I wanted to, to make those students lives any harder. I want us to just identify that every student can be a learner. And so if we all can be learners, how can we open more doors to foster that environment for every single student in your classroom? So no one said it would be easy, but <laughs> it's important. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to go back to something you said earlier. I wrote it down is your idea behind the bucket list. Oh, you said you would expand on that. So you, you check something off as of last week. Congrats on the TEDx, uh, success. Talk to me about what you meant with your thoughts behind the bucket list. Well, I have to ask you, do you consider yourself a person who has a bucket list? You know, I, I don't really think of it that way. I'm like, Hey, I have these things I want to do. And I try to take action into doing them. So I would argue that's the healthy approach <laughs> because I found that, um, I don't know whether it was high school or I, you know, sophomore year, I dropped services for my, um, IEP because I was headed to college. And when you apply to college, at least at the time that I was, you had to identify yourself as a special education student applying to college. And I didn't want the title. I didn't want the label. I went to a really good high school and I was embarrassed and whatever. So um, I dropped services my sophomore year and just tried really hard to find some way to get a degree or, or accomplish something that was beyond what people kept telling me I would. Right. And I created a quote unquote bucket list. I don't know at the time if I even labeled it that way, but it was a list in my head of things that I said that I wanted to accomplish. But what I've reflected on more recently within the past five years is this is a list of things that I think I truly believed I was incapable of doing. And when I say that, it was kind of a blending of that fact that I wasn't smart enough to do them. And also that the ability to do the things on this list weren't all going to, to be on my shoulders. And it was somebody else also allowing me to do it. 
And I think that there's some disgusting nature of that. Like we should not create lists that we should, that, you know, you tack up on your bulletin board of, of a list of things that you truly believe you can't do just so you can sit and stare at it. Right. Like we need to see more for ourselves. We'd have more faith in ourselves and we need to be problem solvers well beyond that. You know, so on my list was to get my master's degree. Well, I have to say, I mean, it wasn't easy, but yeah, I was able to do that. You know, on my list was the TEDx presentation or, you know, whatever. So it was just interesting. I had, I've had some reflection the past year or so. Everything that existed on that list was my 12 year old self saying, Hey, you're never going to be able to do this. And I think I have more disdain and frustration now saying I'm 30 and I accomplished that. How little did you think of yourself at 12 that this was the unreachable? And yet a few you know, years later, you actually got there and you're still on the up and up. And so as people hopefully listening, think about a bucket list. The best part of a bucket list is challenging yourself to be able to do them. And I want it to be in a healthy way because I really didn't have a healthy approach, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. I think of the movie, The Bucket List, right? Where you only, people only start doing those things and taking risk or taking action when they're diagnosed with cancer or they're 80 years old or someone close to them passes away. And it's like, now I can do something to get to where I wanted to be back when I was 20 or 12 or whatever it may be. So in your mind, if, you know, maybe I had my bucket list and it was travel to Fiji and be a TEDx speaker or jump out of an airplane, whatever it may be. Yeah. How can I reframe that in a healthier way? What's your, like, what's the tip to success that I can do today? I'd like it to be something that you want to accomplish that you put a time frame on. Like if you want to go to Tahiti, like when, how about within the next five years? Okay, cool. So like, let's save some money. Let's buy a bathing suit. Let's hop on a plane and let's make it happen. And by the way, who do you want to travel with? Oh, invite them too. You know, so it's not so much like, oh, I really want to jump out of a plane, but I want to jump out of a plane before I turn 40. Okay, cool. So I have 10 years. Where do I want to do it? Should I stay in Illinois? Maybe I want to do it in Colorado, right? Maybe I should plan a trip. So really looking at these things as goals that have timelines, I think allow us to find them as exciting. We can make plans. We can be working towards something versus an aimless list that we are essentially throwing darts at and being like, maybe I'll get there. But when I don't, I'm going to feel guilty about not doing it. Yeah, I love that. And I love that the putting action into practice, something I talk about even with just wellness is like, oh, I want to run a 5K. So go ahead and sign up for that race or take that first step to get to where you need to be. Yes, a thousand percent. And that has to be a part of our life. I mean, even as I was sharing, I was thinking the same thing you just said, like, oh, this is like what you say all the time with fitness and wellness, but that's the truth. Like if you approach life in that way, you are going to be happier because you're going to be giving yourself successes and excitement along the way. And so I I would just love for everybody to have their own excitement list. Maybe that's what we should call it. Excitement list. I love it. So switching gears a little bit, you and Dave recently did a daily drop-in that I really enjoyed. And the conversation was from a mastermind that he was a part of. And you guys talked about the connection between grace, empathy, and judgment. Oh, I just really love the conversation and the, you know, the write up that was on your social media with it. And I think 
Um, empathy is such a powerful leadership tool that is often overlooked. So what I want to ask you without, you know, going too deep into the whole, whole discussion, I will share the discussion in the show notes. You guys should definitely check it out, but where do you see the role of empathy and how do you use it working with students, peers, employees, whatever it may be? Yeah. It's so funny you bring this up because I remember this day like it was yesterday. It was mid-December we had this conversation and I forced Dave to write a blog about it because he was sharing all this information on a live video and I was like mouth open, like shocked at this insight that I was... I was not, I was really like unable to participate because I was processing <laughs> and I'm, it's so funny you bring this up. I just brought this up to Dave last week as, you know, something that I really appreciated that conversation and just, yeah, really quick guys, there's so much out there. You guys can go explore. Dave Schmidt says it the best, but it was this understanding of during COVID we were struggling with, ju- with not judging, you know, our students, not judging our colleagues, you know, somebody wasn't responding. Well, why aren't they responding? And, and on the flip side, society was saying, have grace. And so Dave was looking at this, this trajectory of judgment on one side and grace on the other. And so when an unknown event happens, you can either judge somebody, which is a negative, right? That action, or you can give them grace and, you know, assume the best, right? Something happened and I don't know about it. And Dave's analysis was that in the middle of that, what we should be aiming for is empathy because empathy has the, has the ability to have elements of grace, but what it doesn't have, or what it has in addition to grace is this idea of understanding where you actually truly understand why the action happened. And I think that this lends into not only the success we can have with staff members, but also with our students that we can choose to give grace all the time, but it's truly like living in ignorance. And if we choose to instead give grace, maybe initially, but then explore and find out more of why something occurred. Now you're giving empathy, which allows you to be supportive to those around you. And I think this is so important for students, um, obviously with colleagues as well, but my perspective is always, you know, when my student doesn't show up for class and we're in a hybrid model, rather than being upset or marking them off a a grade letter or whatever, what happened? How can I help you? How can I help you catch up? But also how can I help you be successful in the future? And how can I foster our relationship, you know, as we continue to develop? So. Yeah. I love the conversation guys. If you're listening to this, you need to Take a look at the show notes. Go look at the live video. Ray was a participant in the conversation, whether she believes it or not. And then I'll see if I can find or if Ray can share with me the blog post. We'll also share that in the show notes. But I 100% agree that we need to strive to be empathetic, but it requires work on us, right? If you're listening or you're experiencing something that you could just give grace or you could just judge, oftentimes we don't go to that empathetic state because it requires work on our end and that understanding and building compassion or whatever it may be. Um, But I also love the tie-in that you're able to educate the student on why you're giving grace or what level of grace that you are giving at that point. So I just love that conversation. So I wanted to bring it up um, to Dave, share it. Dave Schmidow is a genius, guys. If you're listening to this and you're not connected to Dr. Dave Schmidow, that would be a great connection for all of you to make. He's wonderful. Dave, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the show. Just hit me up at TeacherFit <laughs> on any social media platform. Um, He'd love to, he would love to ta- chat with you, no doubt. <laughs> 
Um, so I want to get to a couple questions that I ask everyone at the end of the show and see your thoughts. And yours will be a little extra exciting, and you'll know why in a second. But uh, the first question is, what is one class that students don't currently receive that every student should have in K through 12 education? Ooh, um, so I think I apologize. I'm going to like derail this, but I really believe that we need more movement in our schools. So whether that be like a simple answer, like, oh, every educator, you know, every student should have PE. That's really not what I mean. Like I really in a perfect world would love to see a school that embedded movement in every class. And I actually work um, occasionally with my friend, Michael Jennings, who just completely inspires me in this area, but that would be something I would really like to see. So I cheated, but that I do want to see that shift. It's so important. Yeah. You're speaking my language. I love that answer. <laughs> that may be my favorite answer. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no movement would be amazing. Um, next one is the exciting one for you. So I, I usually ask if you're going to give a Ted talk this weekend, what would the topic be? Ah. Since you are a TEDx um, alumni, if you will, or you've already done it. If you could go back, how would you change your topic or presentation? Oh my gosh, that's a big question. So my topic was called better than YouTube. And what my messaging was is about mastery learning where educators should hold themselves to a higher standard than being better than just you know, being content delivery systems, but really being facilitators of learning. So let YouTube do the low level direct instruction. Let's put educators higher up on a pedestal to do the hard work that YouTube can't do. And um, I think that if I was to change my TED talk, one of the biggest things I would have loved to do, honestly, is slow down. I spoke really fast and there were some really important points that I wanted to pause, intentionally say, and then pause again. And I think the nerves got at the best of me, to be honest. So that, that would probably be it. Slow yeah. down just a little bit. Got it. Slow down. I'm a fast talker, so. I mean, you do, you do a lot of and, it, right? Between. <laughs> and though it was freezing on stage. I was so cold. My <laughs> hands were like ice. And so I think the nerves and feeling like I was on an icicle was the problem. The outside circumstances, you can never control them. I, I know. It. And I was like in a long sleeve shirt and pants. Oh my God, I was so cold. <laughs> Guys, I know you weren't there to see the filming, but like you could see people's breath in the theater and like you can't see it on stage, but before, like in the audience, everybody's in coats. It's like so funny. <laughs> Why would they do that? I don't it was know. so cold. It was so cold. <laughs> All right, last but not least, Obviously, you have a long future in education and your work possibly will never be done. But how will the world of education look different when your mark, when you are complete with leaving your mark on education? Oh, my gosh. You know, um, I have a tattoo on my arm that says the word quixotic. And quixotic for people who aren't aware, because I wasn't for, you know, that wasn't a word that I blend into Me my either. natural conversation. Yeah. Uh, it describes someone who is overly hopeful, overly idealistic, and it has a very negative connotation, right? It's like somebody who 
finds hope, finds positivity in the worst of circumstances, almost to be seen as foolish. It comes from Don Quixote, which is one of my favorite ballets. And I really would love to instill that mindset in as many educators humanly possible, that even when it all looks bad, even when the student looks like there's no way they have too many things in front of them that are going to keep pushing them down, we as educators can carry a quixotic mindset to say, yeah, this mountain is the largest one I've ever seen, but hey, I got some rope, let's figure it out. You know, and I think that that, I don't know if that will be what I leave behind, but that would be the dream. I think you are well on your way to instilling quixotic behaviors in all of education. So I love it. So I won't ask you to share where everyone can follow you. Super simple. We will share it in the show notes. She's everywhere. Make sure you follow Ray and support her work. Ray, it has been amazing to connect and get to know you a little better. And I really appreciate your time and willingness to come on the show. Absolutely. I love talking shop with you anytime. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, if you like this episode, be sure to tag Ray and myself and leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and we'll see you next week. 